Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tanakh Talks podcast. My name is Yaakov Beasley, and I'm broadcasting live from Alon Shfut in the hills overlooking Jerusalem. It is two days before Hanukkah, December 20th. The podcast is dedicated in the memory of my teacher, Rabbi David Fuchs, Zichron Sadek Lebracha, who passed away this morning. May his memory be a blessing, and I'm so appreciative of all the memories that I cherish, the warmth of his teaching, the warmth of his personality that inspired me to continue learning and pushed me to go to higher levels in everything he did. He always began every day, What did you do new today? What new thing idea have you come up with? The emphasis was always on not just accepting things where they are, but are you going forward? And to me, that is such a tremendously powerful and uplifting message. Not only that this is what we're supposed to do, but this is what we're capable of doing. So thank you very much. And now let's begin. Today we're looking at the story of Yehud and Tamar, perhaps one of the most famous stories that just sticks out like a sore thumb in the middle of the final section of Breshit. Chapters 37 to 50 are all about Elatodot Yaakov, Yosef. These are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef, the Joseph story. Chapter 37, Joseph. Chapter 39, Joseph. Chapter 40, Joseph. Chapter 30, 41, Joseph, and so on and so on and so on. Joseph and his brothers, the fight, the sale, the famine, the reunification, and the settling in Egypt to bring the book of Genesis to a close, the end of Sefer Breshit. Yet, sitting there at the very beginning in chapter 38, we have this very strange episode of taking a break from the story of Yosef to tell me the story about Yehud and Tamar, Judah's misadventure with his birth of his two children that will die, his third child, and eventually his mistaking Tamar for a prostitute, his daughter-in-law, on the side of the road, going into her, having relations, eventually being forced to humiliate himself and acknowledge his wrongdoing, but giving birth to two wonderful boys, Zerach and Peretz. So why is it here? It's interesting in his very first article, dealing with the poetics, the rules of biblical narrative, in his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, was originally published in commentary in the mid-70s, Professor Robert Alter noted a bunch of literary parallels between this story and the previous story, as if to suggest that this story is intentionally placed here as a consequence, as a follow-up to the previous story. Now, these literary parallels are actually mentioned originally in the Midrash, and I'd like you to read the Midrash in full. It's in Breshit Rabba, chapter 85. What was the last matter described in the text? And the Midianites sold him to Egypt. Next, therefore, chapter 39 begins, and when Yosef was taken down to Egypt. So Rabbi Elzer said, why then does it interrupt between chapter 37 at the end, where Yosef is being brought down to Egypt, and chapter 39, which begins, and Yosef was taken down to Egypt? Rabbi Elzer says, why the juxtaposition? Why is this story of Jehuda, Yudah, and Tamar right in the middle? This unit comes to juxtapose one descent with another, one of the one of Yosef with the one of Yehuda. Rabbi Yochanan said, this one comes to juxtapose the sentence of, two rec- do you recognize this? Haker in Hebrew. The brothers asked Yaakov, when they, did you recognize the coat? Hakerna, do you recognize this? With another, when Tamar turns to Yehuda, do you recognize the pledge, the signet that you gave me? Hakerna. By the way, it's the only time this, this, this pair of words appears together in Tanakh. Rabbi Shul Nachman said, this unit comes to wide the juxtaposition to show the parallels between the act of Tamar with the act of Potiphar. As opposed to reading it backwards to chapter 37, he goes ahead to read it to chapter 39. Just as one, Tamar, as it were, she sins, but she does so for the sake of heaven, so too did the other. It's an interesting read in the rabbinic tradition. 
one of which is Yazid, Eshet Potiphar, the wife of Potiphar, tries to seduce Yosef, not for physical pleasure, but rather to, she had a dream that this is somehow greatness would come from their union. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi taught the wife of Potiphar saw through her astrology that she was destined to progeny from him, but she didn't know whether it was from herself or her daughter. It's a fascinating read. One more suggestion about reading it forward between chapter 38 and chapter 39 is actually it sets up a great parallel between Yehuda and Yosef, between Judah and Joseph, both of whom are placed in sexually compromising positions. But whereas Yehuda will not only lose his clothing or at least his identifying ring, signet, staff, and commit the sexual impropriety, Joseph doesn't. He loses his shirt, that is true, but that's because he chooses to run away. And it shows to show the level of righteousness of Joseph versus the um, failing in this story of Yehuda. Yet, for all these immediate parallels, I'd like to suggest that this story is just not just there to show the nice word plays or even the thematic appeals between chapters 37 and 38, or 38 and 39, but rather that this story is key to unlocking the entire story of the Joseph narrative. The entire reconciliation, I will argue, does not happen unless this story occurs. So let's begin, and let's go back to chapter 37. Remember that the brothers are just trying to decide what to do with their brother, the dreamer. He is the son of Yaakov's favorite wife. He's been shown favoritism. He is already planning and describing in great detail the dreams that he has that the brothers will bow down to him, that he will assert, assert dominion and rule over them. So one can imagine that they aren't quite too happy with him. And the text makes that very clear in one of Rashi's great comments. The fact that the brothers don't speak to him and pretend that everything's okay, it may be to their detriment, but it's also to their praise that they're open and honest with how they feel. So when Yosef comes from Hebron to the Shechem area looking for them, the brothers say, let's kill him. That's option number one. Reuben has no intention of letting Yosef die. The text tells us he intends to save Yosef, bring him back to his father, which of course is a very heroic act on his part. But he makes another suggestion, put him in the pit. We shouldn't be the one killing him. And that's what the brothers choose to do. Finally, we have Yehuda. Yehuda appears to occupy a middle ground, the middle ground between the brothers, let's kill him, and Reuben, no, let's bring him back to Yaakov, which he won't say out loud. Yehuda's response is fascinating. Yehuda argues with the brothers, and he said, as they look up and they see the Ishmaelite caravan coming, and Yehuda said to his brethren, what profit is there if we kill our brother and cover it up? Let's go sell him to the Ishmaelim, and our hands won't be on him, for he is our brother, he is our flesh. And his brothers listen to him. The repetition of brother, brother, brother. So on one hand, it appears to be a better option than kill him, and of course less than saving him. But if you listen carefully, there's a certain irony here. Yehuda's appeal is, we can't kill him because, because he's our brother. We don't kill brothers. But apparently selling them to Yishmaelite caravans into certain slavery for the rest of his life in Egypt, that was okay to do to a brother? How is that even possible? How is that feasible? It's interesting that the rabbis, in their discussion of the first verse of chapter 38, and Yehuda goes down from his brothers, they see it not only as a physical and geographical descent, but rather it's as if he's been fired. The brothers say to him, in one version, we listened to you and we sold him into slavery. 
had you told us, sell, bring him back to Abba, bring him back to his father, we'd have listened to you too. You're the one responsible for all of Abba's suffering. A very harsh accusation. There's another approach in the Midrash Tanchuma which says as follows, that the brothers in fact decided they were not going to have a leader at all. And Yehuda went down from his brothers, and this is the Midrash Tanchuma, sorry, it's in the Breshi Rabbah, again in chapter 85. They said, let us take care of ourselves. We don't need a leader anymore because the last two we've had, Reuben and Yehuda, have been failures. Previously, Abba was meant to bury us off, but now that he's occupied with slack, sackcloth and fasting, it isn't proper he should concern himself with marrying us off. And then they said to Yehuda, you're our brother, you go find somebody to marry first. And it's no surprise that the next verse is, and Yehuda came, when he comes to Adulam, he sees the daughter of a Canaanite man, whose name was Shua, and he takes her as a wife, this daughter, and he comes to her. First of all, he's marrying a Canaanite girl, which already should be a yellow light. I know the rabbinic tradition that says that only Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov were forbidden from marrying Canaanite girls. The logic is very simple. They were individuals. Had they married a Canaanite girl, they would have assimilated to a larger society. Now that Yaakov has 12 sons, the girls marrying to his family, there would be less chance of them being influenced. But even so, for somebody who's reading through Sefer Breshit, reading through the book of Genesis, this marriage causes yellow lights to go. More importantly, there's another clue here that this marriage is not a great thing. It says, he takes her as a wife, and he comes into her. Vayavo eleha. In Hebrew, there are three words to describe the marital relationship between man and wife, the physical intimacy. One is, ideally, vayeda, and he knew. To know is, of course, the union of the physical and spiritual highest level. There's a second level, which is vayishgav. The third is, which means to lie with, the third is to come into. Vayavo. And Rashi points out, this is way, when Yaakov says this to Lavan, you know, let me come to Rachel now, that Rashi points out, even the most crass people don't speak in those terms. Yet this is the way it describes Yehuda's relationship. More evidence of the failing relationship between Yehuda and his wife comes from the descriptions of his three boys being born. First, it's Er. And who's there giving the name? Yehuda. The second son is Onan, but it's not Yehuda who chooses his name, rather it is his wife. Finally, the third son, Shelah, is born, and it describes that Yehuda is not even present at that point in time. Not only does he not give the name, but rather he's not even present anymore. The next verse continues that Yehuda finds a wife for Er, and his, his, her name was Tamar. And then it tells us, Er bechor Yehuda, Rab Hashem, a beautiful little wordplay, E-R, in Hebrew, ayin resh, is Ra, R-A. So we have the little reversal, that Er is Ra in God's eyes. Side note, the themes of eyes and of seeing are going to repeat themselves in this story in very significant junctures. So let's just keep that on the side burner. The Torah then continues that Er is evil in God's eyes, and we wonder what in God's eyes means. I think the simple explanation is that he was doing things that nobody else knew about. But God did, and therefore God chose to kill him. And that, of course, explains why Yehuda will blame Tamar for the demise of his two older children. Having said that, it is clear, however, that this is also meant to be a punishment to Yehuda. He's going to lose two children. Just as a person who steals has to pay double, he took Yosef, his father's son, away from him, as it were, stealing Yosef, and therefore he's going to pay double with the loss of his own two children. And I think this is the hidden meaning of what Reuben will say later. 
When Reuben tries to convince Yaakov, send the kids with me, I'll take care of them, you don't have to worry about them. And in fact, if I don't bring Binyamin back, you can take my two sons, you can kill my two sons. What does it mean? Why would he say that? But I don't think he's actually looking at Yaakov when he says that. He's looking at Yehuda. The Reuben says, Yehuda, I have two sons to give because I wasn't responsible for the sale of Yosef. You don't. After Er dies, the next son up is Onan. And there's a big speech from Yehuda. Fayomer Yehuda Onan. And Yehuda said to Onan, Go unto your brother's wife and do the Levite ceremony. Marry her to raise children. Raise a name for your brother. And Onan knew that he would, this kid would not be his. So he went into his brother's wife and he spilled his seed on the floor. Coitus interruptus. From here comes the 19th century word for masturbation, Onanism. And then finally, because he refused to give seed to his brother. Just like previously, it had mentioned the word brother, brother, brother. Now we have again the repetition, brother, 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 brother. What has happened here is very simple. The hard part about child raising is that kids only listen to 10% of what you say, but they listen to 90% of what you do. Yehuda may talk a good game about how to take care of a brother, but in fact, he's being here when Onan thinks himself be a good brother, he's probably wondering in the back of his mind, so where is Uncle Joe these days? Where is Yosef? What has happened to him? And of course, Onan's failure to be a good brother causes him to die and Hashem punishes him by killing him. After God kills Onan, Yehuda tells Tamar, Go back to your father's house, remain a widow, but I will marry my third son to you when he grows up. But then the Torah tells me that he says to himself, for he's, I'm not going to take a chance of him dying. I don't risk one child. I don't risk children. So tomorrow goes, and of course, Yehuda's wife, Shua's daughter, will die, and Yehuda is comforted. Again, the same word as Yaakov refused to be comforted, but Yehuda is comforted immediately, and he goes up to Sheepshear with his friend Hira from Adulam. The same guy appears, and he's going to appear for a third time at the end of the story. We're going to do a separate podcast next week during the Hanukkah break about sheep-shearing, but for now it should be noted that sheep-shearing in the Bible is always a sign that somebody's going to get fleeced. Now, Tamar hears about the fact that Yehuda has gone to Timnah to sheep-shear. It says, she sees, and she sees correctly, that Shelah is not being given to her, that Yehuda is refusing to fulfill his responsibility to his children and to her, and the promise that he made. So she goes and sits by the crossroads. Interesting, how are, what is the word for crossroads here? Petach enaim, a place where eyes are open, because she sees what's going on. The next verse tells me when Yehuda sees her, he doesn't see his daughter-in-law. He sees a harlot. She sees a girl dressed up as a prostitute, or he assumes a prostitute. So the act of seeing here is so significant. Tamar can see what's going on. Yehuda can't. When Yehuda sees her, he says to her, Come, let me come into you. The same word which described his marriage to his first wife. He didn't know who she was, and she said, Well, what are you going to give me? How much will you pay me for this? And he said, I will send you a goat from the flock. Tamar said, Excuse me, Mr. Yehuda, I've read Sefer Breshid. I know that goats are used to deceive in Breshid all the time. This is how Yaakov fooled Yitzchak with goat skins. This is how you, Yehuda, fooled your father Yaakov by dipping the torn coat of Joseph into the goat's blood. Again, 
Tamar is much more aware of what's going on. Yehuda, of course, this isn't, of course, the exact quote. She doesn't say that I've read Sefer Breshit, but she's much more ahead of the game than Yehuda is. And so Yehuda says, well, what can I leave you as collateral? She says, give me your wallet. Uh, back then, it's not a wallet, it's a staff, it's a signet, it's a cord. And he gives it to her, and he comes into her, and she becomes pregnant. She goes away, she takes off her veil, puts on her clothing. Now, Yehuda is actually relatively honest. He does come back with the goat. He sends it by his friend Hiram from Adulam to pay up for the the services rendered, as it were. And Hiram's looking around, has anybody seen the prostitute? Now, it's interesting, he doesn't use the word that Yehuda used. Yehuda sees Ezona. He uses a more respectful term, the Kadesha, the sacred temple prostitute, as it were. That is, because he doesn't want to embarrass his friend Yehuda, that he just went and slept with the prostitute. Either way, he comes back, I can't find her, and you've just lost your wallet. There's nothing you can do about it. Three months later, of course, it is discovered that Tamar is pregnant, and he is furious, because that's what every good, righteous father-in-law is. And he says, take her out to be burnt. And when she's being brought forth, she sends a message to her father. These signet ring, the staff, the cord, by this man is the person I am pregnant with. And she said, can you tell me, do you recognize him? Hakerna, Yehuda, to his great credit, sets an example. He takes responsibility. And he says, I acknowledge that she's righteous. I'm the father. He doesn't live with her anymore. And she will eventually give birth to two boys, twins. Interesting with two little things here. One, the word twins is spelled correctly. Not missing, like with Yaakov and Esau, implying that both kids will be righteous. Here it's spelled in the full form because both of those kids will become up to great Jewish men. Secondly, if that allusion to the Yaakov and Esau twin story is not enough, look what happens. One kid puts his hand out. It's get covered with a red cord, but then it gets pulled back in, and the proper kid gets born first, Peretz, the one who breaks forth. As opposed to the red kid coming out first, this time it's the non-red kid coming out first. And Peretz is significant in the Yaakov story because unlike his father and his grandfather who got promised the land of Israel with borders, Yaakov is told, Ufarazda, and you will break forth. You have an inheritance without borders. So the allusions to the Yaakov and Esau story are tremendous. Having said all that, we now have to go back to the claim that I made at the beginning. That this story is placed here not just to show some local parallels between wordings between the previous chapter and chapter 37, the sale of Joseph, or possibly to set up a comparison between Joseph and Yehuda, between Yosef's behavior of Eshapoti far later in chapter 39, but that this story serves a very important, perhaps crucial and vital function in the Yosef story. And that's why it's placed in the middle of the Yosef story. And it comes back to Tamar's interesting request. She asked for collateral. The Hebrew word that she asked for, for collateral, is Erevon. From the word Arev, to guarantee. What is an Arev in Jewish law? It's a person who's willing to stand in for somebody else. If you take a loan, there's a lender and a borrower, but there's also a guy who's willing to sign on the line. If this person can't fulfill his responsibilities, I will do so. That person's called the Arev. Now, who has primary responsibility? Obviously, the first person himself. But if he's unable or incapable, the second person acknowledges, I'm willing to stand in for this person. The same thing happens, by the way, the same meaning applies 
with the phrase Kol Yisrael Raven Zayaseh, that all B'nai Yisrael are responsible for each other. Each person has a responsibility to do the commandments. But what happens is, if one person can't do them, then another person can do it for him in certain cases, i.e. to make a blessing for him, to blow the shofar for him, to do acts of chesed on behalf of somebody else, because not because that's what we do. We take care of each other. That's what brothers and siblings and family does. Now, with that little word game, it's important that this word is going to appear two more times at significant ventures in Sefer Breshit. The first one I wanted to go to is chapter 43. The brothers have come back. They've told Yaakov the condition. If they want to come back and buy more food, they've lost Shimon. They have to bring Binyamin. And Yaakov, of course, doesn't even listen to Reuben's offer about killing his own two sons. He doesn't trust Reuben. Reuben has not proven himself to be reliable. But in chapter 43, when the food is empty, the cupboards are empty, and there's no more choice, Yehuda approaches Yaakov and he says, listen, we don't have a choice in the matter. And Yehuda, Yaakov says, why have you been so ill of me? You know, done treatment so poorly. Why didn't you even tell me it, a brother? And they said, you know, he says, listen, the guy was asking a lot of questions. We didn't think it would come to this. And Yehuda says, give him with me and we'll come back and that way we will all live. And then he says, Anochi eravenu. I will guarantee him. Miyadi tevakshenu. You can take it from my hand. In other words, Yehuda is willing to stand in for his brother. And perhaps it's significant and fitting that Yehuda does this. Because Yaakov's already lost two children. Yosef and Shimon. He's afraid to lose a third to risk Binyamin. Yehuda's lost two children. And he didn't want to risk a third. He's the only one of the kids who says, Abba, I know how you're feeling. One other point, and I think this is the most insignificant point of this parallel, of the word Arev, is that Yehuda is actually quoting Yaakov himself. He's quoting his father at his father's greatest, best moment. When Yaakov has to flee from Lavan, and Lavan pursues him, and he accuses him of thievery, he searches, Laban searches all the tents. He doesn't find his missing trafim, his missing idols, because Rachel has hidden them. Then Yaakov turns to Lavan, and one can imagine with this pent-up righteous fury and indignation, for 20 years I've worked for you. For 20 years I've been the most honest worker a person can be. In fact, there's an entire chapter in Baba Batra dedicated to Yaakov's behavior. These are the responsibilities that an honest worker gives his employer. And we learn it from Yaakov. Yaakov was always accused of being the trickster, the sneaky one. In fact, is the paradigm of honesty, that we learn laws of honesty from. And one of the things he says, when he describes whether 20 years, nothing has gone wrong, anything that was torn by the beast, I paid for myself. I was up a day, up all night. Anochi echatena miyadi tivakshena. From I was willing to cover it, I bore the loss, you can take it from my hand. Yehuda said to Yaakov, It's almost exactly the same phrase. I'll make up the loss. You can guarantee, I guarantee it. And it's the fact that brothers are willing to guarantee for each other, to stand in for each other, that saves the story. Yosef, his viceroy, takes Binyamin. The brothers could have gone back and said, Well, we lost another one hate when that happens. But in fact, they don't do so because Yehuda stands up in front of the vice and says, I'm sorry. 
He has to go back. You can take me. I'll stand in for him. I will be the Ariv. I'm the guarantor of my brother. And Yosef's never seen that sort of sibling loyalty. He's never seen the brothers take care of each other, especially a son of Leah taking responsibility for son of Rachel. And when he sees that, he knows that everything has changed. And this is a family that you can go back to, and he wants to be a part of. And this is a family that is destined for greatness. This is how the, and why the Yehudas and Tamar story is so important. We get a hint of what responsibility entails. We see Yehuda fail with his own sons, but he learns from the lesson. He learns from the Tamar's story the lesson of responsibility, the lesson of guarantee of what a brother really has to do to take care of a brother, and he's able to do the tikkun, to fix the sins that they did. And when that happens, the family is reunited and everybody is back together again. With that thought in mind, especially as you approach not only Shabbat, but Hanukkah, the story of the civil war between the Jews, let's be hoped and pray that we are successful to repair our people and make it whole once again. Shabbat Shalom.